He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That we, um, by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to him in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our study today. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have your word that illuminates our thinking, gives us guidance gives us discernment, gives us wisdom, helps us to understand that which we just barely comprehended when we trusted in Christ as Savior, that it teaches us that which transpired uh, that was not part of our experience in the sense that we didn't feel it, we didn't have some sort of special event take place internally other than a non-experiential rebirth, that we were made alive together in Christ, that we have been given new life, your life, with the hope that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, mature, and shine forth as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Now, Father, today as we focus on this event that transpired at the instant of our faith in Christ. Help us to understand what took place and its significance for our lives. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to begin with to Ephesians chapter 2. For about the first half of the morning message, we'll be in Ephesians 2, and then we'll go to John John chapter 3. The focus this morning is on regeneration, new life in Christ. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, we read the heart of this opening sentence, which began in verse 1 and extends down through verse 7. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the past several weeks, we've been working our way through the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, which talks about one of those many blessings that Paul Uh, referred to in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where he said that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. The starting point of that 
is what is contained in verses uh, 5 and 6, that we've been made alive together with Christ, that we have been raised up together and seated together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is so much here that is that we won't even get a chance to talk about today or next week or the week to come, uh, and that is rarely probed by many pastors or even many theologians. But it is the foundation for understanding who we are as church-age believers in Christ. For as I've pointed out in our previous studies, what we're seeing here is something new. That doesn't mean that regeneration is something new, being born again is something new, for this has been a necessary reality since the fall of Adam and Eve, since the fact that they were first penalized for their disobedience by spiritual death. There has been the need and the necessity of a spiritual rebirth in order to have an ongoing relationship with God and to have eternal life. But in each dispensation, it seems that there are different uh, secondary features to regeneration. Now, this confuses a lot of theologians because often you will see confusing and contradictory explanations of regeneration because frequently they'll go to some new covenant passage in Ezekiel or in Jeremiah and they will take the secondary attributes that will characterize regeneration in the millennial kingdom and read them back into the present age or even into the Old Testament. Uh, we have to understand that there is a primary thing called rebirth or regeneration, and then there are secondary features. And what we see here is a description of those secondary features. We are made alive. That doesn't mean that Old Testament saints were made alive when they uh, trusted in the gospel of a future provision of salvation in the Old Testament. It, but there's something new added here. We, that term, as we'll see and as, as we've studied, referring to both Jew and Gentile in one body, is unique and distinctive now to this, uh, this, this act of regeneration. We are not just made alive as in the Old Testament, but we are made alive together, Jew and Gentile. And unlike in the Old Testament, it is being made alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. It is something new is added to accompany regeneration in this church age. But we have to understand just what regeneration is. This is may surprise you, but this is a confusing topic for many theologians. Uh, I have a good friend who's uh, part of this ministry. He and his wife do not live here in Houston, and so they uh, live stream all of the time, but he has a background in undergraduate biblical studies, and over the years he has uh, taught many different Bible studies, and he, although his uh, profession is not in the ministry, he has carried out the ministry of a believer in his life, and he has uh, learned enough about Greek and Hebrew over the years to do some very good work 
in different different studies, and he likes to write out what he has studied, and he does a good job. And so uh, I always appreciate that, and he provides a good sounding board for things, and he's written something of an extensive paper that's still a work in progress, uh, well over 200 pages at this point, on regeneration, and it's not complete. And part of what he does is he's gone through and he's looked at what different well-known theologians have said about what regeneration is and how they've defined it, and it's amazing. Based on that, you could say no theologian out there really understands what regeneration is other than that you're given new life, okay? You move from spiritual death to spiritual life. You know, there are a few quite a few, in fact, that do have, I think, a a biblically correct understanding. But there's so many that don't, and there's so many secondary and tertiary features that they import into the primary meaning that it's it's just aggravating at times. I I read an article yesterday in a well-known Bible dictionary on regeneration, and I spotted at least five factual errors in the way that they confuse the meaning of a couple of Greek words. This is a well-published author already. He's got all kinds of... And the editors of this dictionary didn't catch it. It's just confusing. And I can imagine why people sitting in the pew have trouble understanding this if they're reading or listening to some pastors and some teachers who really haven't done an adequate job or they put the pieces together but they've sort of ram crammed and jammed them to make them fit and they they really don't so i'm hoping that in our study tonight or this morning rather that things will smooth out a little bit for you let's just review what we've seen so far in ephesians chapter 2 the basic structure of ephesians 2 is to Identify the problem in the first three verses. The problem is our spiritual death. It's what we were, who we were, before we were saved. The solution is then spelled out in verses 4 through 9. The solution starts, as I pointed out in the previous lesson, with the grace of God. That God who is rich in mercy... That is the ultimate ground or cause of our salvation, his love for us. And what he did for us freely, graciously, without condition, is what's outlined and explained in verses 4 through 9, excluding works and putting the emphasis on God's unmerited favor, his grace. And then the purpose for our salvation is stated in verse 10 that we are saved, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's not the good works are caused the salvation, but that's the purpose, is that now that we are in Christ, if we walk by the Spirit, then we can truly produce uh, good works because they're produced in us by the Holy Spirit and not on our own. So in reviewing the problem what we were before we were saved, we are identified by Paul as being spiritually dead. This applies to every single person. It's, it, today, sin has taken on some kind of sense of super, super bad things. Genocide, racism, uh, any number. Of, uh, the Pope now wants to make uh, environmental sin a category of sin. 
And there's all kinds of things that are elevated to the category of sin that may indeed be sins, but they're grounded upon the basics of what we find in Scripture, foundationally arrogance, man's self-absorption, his independence, and his rebellion against God. And so that sin uh, affects all of us. We sin. We sin in uh, ways that we're not conscious of. We sin in ways that we are conscious. We miss the mark, as I've been explaining in our study of sin and confession in Second Samuel, looking at David's sin and then his confession in Psalm 51, his joy of, of uh, forgiveness in Psalm 32, Sin basically means to miss the mark, to fall short. And that's what Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That phrase, the glory of God, is a circumlocution. See, now you have to think a little bit this morning. Circumlocution is a way, circum, like you uh, go around something, like the circumference of a circle. In other words, instead of saying it one way, you go around it by saying another way. And when you sum up all of God's essence, all of his attributes, everything that God is, that is what makes God distinctive. It's what makes God unique and what makes him the center and focus of, or what should be the center and focus of everything in the universe. So, One of the idioms that was used in the first century and in uh, Judaism was to refer to the essence of God, who he was, his being, as his glory. So when Paul writes this, he's not just saying we've fallen short of God's righteousness, or he's not just saying we've fallen short of God's justice, or we've fallen short of God's holiness. We've fallen short of everything that makes up the attributes of God. We have fallen short of the glory of God. That is what sin is, and it's everyone. He says all have sinned. That includes himself. It is not a statement of that is judgmental of people, but it is a reality that we must come to grips with if we're going to understand the glorious gospel that of our salvation. Romans 3.10, just a few passages or a few verses earlier, he says, there is none righteous. This is a big problem. A lot of people think that they have done pretty good things and that somehow God ought to pay attention to the fact that they're not as bad as any number of people out there. But we're not good enough for God. The measuring rod, the standard, is God's character. And he is absolute righteousness. He's absolute perfection. And Scripture says there's none righteous. In fact, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 64, 6, uh, Isaiah said that all of our righteousnesses, not all of our unrighteousness, but all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so we are unclean as far as God is concerned. And Job writes in the Old Testament, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? How can we as human beings who are sinners who are, scripturally speaking, unclean, that is that we fall short of the glory of God, we're sinners, we're not righteous, how can we produce righteousness? Well, we just can't. It is impossible. There has to be a solution. 
Now, this problem is stated here in Ephesians 2.1 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, this obviously isn't physical death because Paul is talking to the Ephesians and he says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, they're all physically alive and they've been physically alive. So this is a different category of death and it is what we call spiritual death which means that we're separated from the life of God. Now, we don't just pull that, that definition out of thin air. We get it from what the Scripture says. In Ephesians 4, uh, 4 17 and 18, we have a definition. At 4.17, Paul is talking to the Ephesian believers, and he says, I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that y'all, he was using a second-person plural, Y'all should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Walking is a metaphor for living your life. Uh, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened. So he's talking about unbelievers. And then he says they're alienated from the life of God. That's the phrase that helps us understand what spiritual death is. Something was lost when Adam and Eve died spiritually. When they were, when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God had said that in the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. So when they ate of the fruit, something happened. They didn't die physically but they were separated from God. So that later when God came to walk in the garden, rather than welcoming him as they had every day, they were afraid and they hid. They were now spiritually dead. They had lost that capacity to have a relationship with God. So that spiritual death then applies. That's the second point in our review is that spiritual death applied to all Jews and Gentiles. It wasn't just a Gentile problem. Paul, writing from the background of a Pharisaical Jew, uh, would have looked down on Gentiles as being inherently less than, than Jews. But after salvation, he recognizes that all have sinned, that Jews are just as sinful as the Gentiles. So he emphasizes this in the way he uses these pronouns. So that's important to understand as you read through here. When he talks about you, he's talking to the his not simply his audience of Ephesians, but he's talking to the Gentiles because his contrast in here is between you Gentiles and we Jews. For example, in Ephesians 1.12, he says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The we there referring to we Jews. And then in verse 13, he follows by, up by saying, in him you all also trusted. You Gentiles also trusted after y'all heard the word of truth, the gospel of y'all's salvation, in whom also having believed y'all were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So that when we come down to the next section in Ephesians 2, Paul continues this distinction by saying, Therefore, remember that y'all, once Gentiles in the flesh, see, he's not talking to them as Jews when he uses that second person plural. And all through this part of Ephesians, the you and the we refers to you Gentiles and sometimes you Gentile believers now 
or we Jews are, in a couple of places, it could be we together, as we'll see when we get into verses 4, 5, and 6. He makes that makes that shift. I was pleased yesterday. I hadn't gone back and read uh, Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer and his very small commentary on Ephesians called the Ephesian Letter, that he makes this same distinction. It is very popular today uh, to not see this distinction until you get into the second half of chapter two, but that just doesn't make uh, just doesn't make any sense. So in Ephesians two one through three lays down the fact that you Gentiles are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once lived according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom. These sons of disobedience, we, we Jews, all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, that is, just as the Gentiles. Now, the reason, one reason I'm emphasizing this is we're going to go to John chapter 3 in a few minutes, and when we get there, Jesus is having a conversation with one of the foremost Pharisees of his day, probably the greatest teacher of the law of Moses in his generation, and was respected by that. And so as part of the background, we must understand that as a Pharisee, there was this belief that just because they were descendants of Abraham, they were righteous, didn't matter what they had done, they were righteous because of the merits of Abraham. Sounds a lot like what you find in Roman Catholic theology today, that somehow if you are in the Roman Catholic Church and baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, that then you're, then you're given the merits of Christ. And what Scripture teaches is we're not given the righteousness of Christ until we have faith in Jesus Christ. So we come down to the uh, key verse, key section we're studying now. And so here, Paul moves his meaning from us. He said, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, is that still talking about just Jews? No. We know that because in verse 5 he says, even when we, that is all of us, were dead in trespasses. He made us alive together. The together means together, Jew and Gentile. Made us alive together, raised us up together, and seated us together so that there's this new identity, this new entity today made of Jew and Gentile alike, and that's the uniqueness and the distinctiveness of the church in this dispensation. The church is not a continuation of Israel. Israel was not the church in the Old Testament, and the church is not Israel in the New Testament. They are distinct entities in God's plan. Now, the third thing that I've talked about that is necessary to review in order to understand the teaching on uh, regeneration and rebirth is the makeup of all human beings. Uh, There are three components for every human being. We have a human body, we have a human soul, and a human spirit. Now, I'm speaking of the original creation. Genesis 1, 25 uh, to 27, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in the image of God. 
In Genesis chapter 2, we see the creation involved first a physical body, and then God breathed life into Adam. As part of that immaterial breath, he receives two things, a human spirit and a human soul. Now, these words, soul and spirit, sometimes you've heard people teach this, and they try to make them technical terms where they always mean the same thing, and that's confusing and it's not correct because sometimes the word soul or the word spirit are just used to refer to the immaterial part of man. But there are two verses where it's very clear that they're distinct. So you always have to just look at the context and judge the context. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul concludes his epistle to the Thessalonians by saying, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here he's very clear distinguishing these three components or three parts that make up the saved believer. Hebrews 4.12 also makes this distinction, I think in a very powerful way, talking about the uh, power of God's word to penetrate into our innermost being. He says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The sword he's describing is like the one in front of the pulpit. And we have tape on the edge of this sword, this machaira up here, because when I was given that, I could have shaved with it. And so we knew that some little kid would be coming up here and run his finger along there and amputate something. So we put tape on it to protect it uh, from somebody uh, slicing off a finger. That's how sharp the Word of God is. It divides things. And part of what it divides is the soul and the spirit. So this is very clear that Paul is saying the Word of God is going to distinguish between these two immaterial parts of man. So if we were to diagram this, we would say that we have a human body, and in that human body there's the soul. The soul is the real you. The soul is made up of your self-consciousness. You look in the mirror, and on a good day you can identify yourself. As you get older, that kind of changes a little bit, and sometimes you wake up in the morning, you still haven't had your coffee, and you look in your mirror and you see your father or your mother, and it scares you and you want to go back to bed. That's your self-consciousness. Then you have a mentality. You have the ability to think, to reason, to use logic. Some people never quite activate that part of their soul. Then you have a conscience. This is where you store your norms and standards, where you have an understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And if you're not a believer, then you're basing your standards on something else. And today we live in a culture that their standard is that there is no standard, that everything is is okay, that there's no absolute right or wrong. And then there's that uh, aspect of our soul that enables us to make choices. That is our volition. The word volition emphasizes more than simply choice. It emphasizes personal responsibility and accountability for the choices that, that we make. And then there is our human spirit. Now, I draw this so that it, it, it includes, it's involved with those four elements of our soul. 
because it enables our self-consciousness to be God-conscious, for our mentality to understand and think about the things of God and to interact with the things that God has revealed, our conscience to store the norms and standards, the absolutes of Scripture, and for our uh, volition to choose that which is eternal and to choose to walk by the Spirit and to follow the Lord. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost that aspect. It either disappeared or it was rendered inactive. There's a lot of debate over which it is, and you could go one way or the other, but it no longer functions so that we, the unbeliever does not have the ability to understand the things of God. This is what the Scripture uh, emphasizes in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now, 1 Corinthians 2.14 uses a key word, and I want to define it first from Jude 19 before we go to 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 2.14. It is in this, in this slide, the word worldly-minded. It's crazy how, how uh, translators will translate this Greek word in many different ways. The word is psychikos. The root is psuche, from which we get our word psychology, psychiatric, and it refers to the soul. So it's a word that has to do with the soul. And then there's an appositional phrase after it, devoid of the spirit. But this word, we'll come back and talk about it in a second, is used in 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural man. So see, New King James translates it worldly-minded one place. The Greek word for worldly is cosmos. That's not anything like it. It's where in the world are they they getting these ideas? It's bad theology. A natural man, psychikos man, does not accept or does not understand the things uh, the things of God. And that phrase, the things of God, it's all the way through this passage going back to verse 9. It always refers to that which God has revealed. So they do not accept the things of God, that which he's revealed, for they, that is what God has revealed in the Scriptures, they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. There is a problem. He can't understand it. Uh, because they are spiritually appraised. Now, he's going to be able to understand the gospel because God the Holy Spirit's going to make it clear to them, but you know, unbelievers, maybe your own experience, you picked up the Bible when you were not saved and you tried to read it and you just couldn't make head or tails out of it. You were very confused. And that's the idea. You're spiritually dead. You don't have that human spirit, which is the capacity to relate to God and to understand the things of God. And so this shows this contrast. The unsaved is the natural man, the saved is the spiritual. Going back to Jude, Jude, said that, Jude says that the one who caused divisions are natural, they're soulish. And then that next phrase, devoid of the spirit, literally in the Greek means not having spirit. So it, it, it's amazing the different ways people get around this, but that defines what a natural man is. That's the same thing that uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, contrasting the natural man with those who are spiritual. So the way the I translate it this way. These are the ones who cause divisions, soulish, not having a human spirit. So we go back to Genesis 2. That's the origin. God's penalty for man was that if you 
disobeyed him, Adam and Eve would immediately die uh, spiritually. So that's the problem. So the solution has to be to be made alive, which is where Paul will start in verse 4. So the main idea of this whole section is this sentence, but God made us alive together, raised us up together, and made us sit together. But he starts off way back here defining the problem before he gets to the solution. Now, in the last lesson, we looked at the solution that this starts with the grace of God, God who is rich in mercy. And it's important how many passages in the Bible that deal with the regeneration and rebirth start with mercy. This idea, it's it's grace in action. It's the kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. It has that idea of compassion or clemency. It is unmerited or unearned favor. You don't do anything to get it. That's why Paul will interrupt himself in verse 5 and say, For by grace you have been saved. So God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, that's the starting point, the cause of our salvation is found in the grace of God. Titus says the same thing. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, according to the standard of his mercy, that he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Peter 1.3, another key passage says that God the Father, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. We're not the cause of our salvation. We're saved through faith, not because of faith. We're saved because of God's love for us. So Ephesians 2.4, God rich in mercy, and then verse 5, made us alive together with him. This is the Greek word, suzoopoieo. It's a compound word. The su at the beginning is soon, and that means together. So whatever it means, it's something that happens together. The zoao means alive, and poieo means to make. So it literally means make alive together. And that is a different word than the words that are used in Titus 3, 5 or the words that are used in John 3 or some other passages talking about regeneration. Uh, Colossians says the same thing. He's made us to live together with him. So this is talking about that act where at the instant of salvation, God either activates a dormant human spirit or if it's not there, I don't believe it's there, he generates it. That word born again emphasizes that something is coming into being that wasn't there. What you'll find in a lot of commentators is that you're given God's nature. But where do they go with that? That if you're given God's nature, then you're not going to sin like you used to sin. And that leads to lordship, salvation, and all kinds of other errors and problems. And that's not what we're given. We're given this capacity now to have a relationship with God, and to have eternal life. It is ours, and it's not taken from us. All right, let's go to John 3. Turn with me to John 3. This is a wonderful episode in Scripture. Many of us have taken time to look at this. I remember one of the first times it really became conscious to me 
I knew the story. I had heard it. I had grown up uh, in good good teaching church. I knew the basic emphasis. But I was probably, I think I was 16 years old, and I was on a canoe trip with Camp Penile going up to Colorado. And we were camped out at this uh, campground. And it wasn't very crowded. It was in June. And there was somebody a couple of campsites over, a young man who was camped there. And one of our leaders was a man who was very uh, significant to me in my early uh, Christian life. His name was Mike Turnage. And Mike was uh, going over to get the water. There was one of these hand crank water uh, water spouts over there. He went over to get it. This young man was there. And we were getting packed up. And all of a sudden, it's like, where's Mike? Well, we looked over there, and Mike is sitting down with this guy at the uh, table that was there. And he's got his Bible out. And he's given the gospel to this young man. And so after this, when they had finished, he led the young man to the Lord. Uh, he was talking. We asked him, well, what, what was going on? What did he ask? What, what, what were you said? And the way Mike started the conversation was, have you ever been born again? And so then he just took him through this particular particular passage. Now, that was a different era and a different time. If you're old enough to remember it, you know that Jimmy Carter made a big deal when he be, was running for president about being born again. And that term took on a lot of weird meanings for a lot of different people. And one time when I was in seminary, I was talking to somebody uh, <coughs> who was uh, 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 dating my cousin, and I m- made the mistake of asking him if he had ever been born again. And so he referred to some psychological experience that he had had. So we have to be very careful now with how we use these terms because Satan always comes in and distorts biblical terminology. Now, Jesus is going to have a conversation with Nicodemus. He's described here as a Pharisee. His name is Nicodemus, which is interesting because in the Greek it looks like it could be from a combination of the Greek word Nike, meaning an overcomer or a ruler, and demos, which means the people. So it could be a title, meaning ruler of the people, that's possible. But in the, in the Greek, it is noctimon. And there is a noctimon who is mentioned in the Talmud a couple, two or three hundred years later, based on Jewish, Jewish legend, who was a very wealthy Pharisee at the time of Jesus, who later lost all of his wealth, and according to the Talmud, it was because he had become a Christian. And so this is the Aramaic term, and what is said there seems to fit uh, what we know of Nicodemus in the Scriptures. And there's a number of people, Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his study on Yeshua the Messiah, Alfred Adersheim, who was a 19th century uh, man who was in training for the rabbinate and then became converted to Christianity and wrote a classic huge book about this thick called Jesus, um, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, uh, which is another outstanding, outstanding study. And both of them and some others think that the Talmud specifically mentions about this Nicodemus. But he's identified for us as a Pharisee, and that tells us a lot. If you talk to somebody and you say, well, they're a Baptist or they're a Presbyterian, they're a Calvinist or they're an Arminian, just that one-word description tells you a lot. 
And so this tells us that he was a man who held to three basic fundamental beliefs among the Pharisees. And they are, first of all, the belief in a universal salvation for all Jews. All Israel has a share in the world to come. This is uh, taken right out of the, of the Mishnah. The second view that they had was that no Jew would see eternal punishment. I put an asterisk there because this got modified later after Christianity came on the scene so that uh, if you were to have become a Christian, then you would, uh, you would not have a place in the world to come. You would have forfeited your uh, position as a Jew. And then their third view was that anyone circumcised would not enter the gates of Sheol. And in the second century, they came up with a uh, workaround for those who converted to Christianity. They said, well, an angel gave you a spiritual foreskin, and therefore you would not, uh, <clears throat> you would not go into the world to come. So there's a lot of really strange ideas that you r- run into uh, with, with the rabbis. So he is a Pharisee, and he is well-trained in the Scripture. Most of the Pharisees could have quoted for you the entire uh, Torah, the entire Old Testament from memory. We think we do good if we memorize 15 or 20 verses. Uh, by the time they were 14 or 15 years old, they would have memorized almost all of the Old Testament. By the time they were 8 or 9, they would have memorized all of the Torah. And that would have been true for the Apostle Paul as well. Uh, Pharisees were not the upper echelon elitists, the elite of the aristocracy like the Sadducees. They weren't necessarily wealthy, though Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea both were. They were working class people. Every Pharisee had to have a trade, and they made their living through their trade. And if the Talmud is right, that the Nakdemion mentioned there is this Nicodemus, then he was a well digger. He had a business where he dug wells, and it was quite uh, quite profitable for him, and he was, was extremely wealthy. But he is also called primarily a ruler of the Jews, and later Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. He says down in um, uh, <clears throat> down verse 10, uh, how is it that you, the teacher of Israel? Now, that doesn't just mean he's a Sunday school teacher. That means that he was considered to be one of the top, if not the top, teacher of the law in Jerusalem. He was at the very top, and he is showing that he he's not saved. He still holds these ideas that somehow that, that all Jews are going to go to heaven because of their inherent righteousness, that they get uh, there's this overflow of righteousness from Abraham, and so they benefit from that, and that's why all Jews are, are going to go go to heaven. So Jesus, uh, he comes to Jesus at night. Some people um, think that this just means they were both very busy and this was the only time they could meet. But in John, there is this contrast all through John between light and darkness. So the fact that he's coming at night seems to have a bit of a negative overtone. And he says, Rabbi, so he's recognizing Jesus as a teacher. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. 
That's interesting. He's, he's heard of the miracles. Perhaps he has seen some of the miracles. And he's heard Jesus teach, and he knows that he's distinctive. There's not another rabbi like this. He must come from God. So he recognizes that at this point. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Then Jesus answers him in verse 3. Jesus cut right to the chase, and he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what's interesting is the phrase, he cannot, is a very strong statement. He is not able to, literally, in the, in the Greek. He's not able to see the kingdom of God. Now, what does it mean to be born again? The word translated again is an ambiguous word. In many places in John, it has the idea of something from above. Jesus says, I came from above. He uses the word anothen. In other places, it has the idea of something in addition to or again. I think that John uses a lot of words that have a double meaning to emphasize both aspects. It's called a double entendre. And so when he says this and uses this particular word, Onothen, he's saying you have to be born a second time, but it also includes the idea that this birth comes from above. We know that, again, must be part of it because the primary word translated regeneration, only used twice in the, in the New Testament, is the word polingenesia. Pollen, at the, the prefix, means again. So that word literally means to be born again. So that's what Jesus is saying to him. Now, as a Jew, as a Pharisee, uh, Nicodemus believed that you could be born again six different ways. The first way, I'm going to run through these real quick, was that when a Gentile converted to Judaism, he was like he was born. Notice that word like. It's a simile, like he was born anew. Okay, but that didn't apply to Nicodemus because he could never be a Gentile converting A second way they thought of this was when a person was crowned king, it was like being born anew. That wouldn't apply to Nicodemus. He wasn't from the tribe of David, so he could never be king. But the next four all would apply to him. At 13, when he was bar mitzvahed, then he would have been said to have been like one born anew. And so that was when he officially became a man. At marriage, a Jew would be said to be born again. And since Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin and a requirement for that was to be married, he would have, that would have applied to him. He would be like a man born anew. Notice every time I say this, it is not, it's a simile. It's like that. It's all physical. Uh, fifth, when ordained as a rabbi, Nicodemus was a rabbi, uh, it was as if he was born anew. And then six, when a rabbi became the head of a rabbinical school, and he would be, he, he, he's the teacher of Israel. So he hears all of these, here's what Jesus says about being born from above, born again, and he thinks, one, two, three, four, well, the first two I can't ever do, the next four I've done, but that's not what he's talking about. How in the world can I do this? He's just flummoxed. And so this is when Jesus is going to explain this to him, when he says, how can a man be born when he is old? The only thing he can think of is somehow going through physical birth again. It's physical, physical, physical. That's important for understanding what Jesus says next. 
Because Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not going to go through all the various different interpretations I've heard of what water describes and of what Spirit describes. But you have to understand two contexts. The context of the role of water in this process in how it was used as a uh, in Judaism it was a euphemism for semen in the in the birth or the conception process also the whole context here has been talking about that which is physical not that which is spiritual so this is talking about two kinds of birth one that is physical everybody has you have to be born physically first before you can be born spiritually. And the second is a birth from the Holy Spirit. Now, quickly, background for this, because later Jesus says, how can, you, how can you as a teacher of Israel not know these things? He assumes Nicodemus should have something from the Old Testament that would give him some clue as to what this was all about. And the passage that hints at this gives some information. It's not talking about regeneration of the church age. It's a new covenant passage, but it talks about two things. It talks about what will happen when the generation, see the, one of the places where the word polygenesia, regeneration is used, is in, uh, in Matthew when Jesus is talking to the Sadducees. And he says, in the, gener- in the regeneration. That's a technical term for the messianic age, the world to come. Now, this comes out of Ezekiel 36, where God promises that in the future he will take you, the Jews, from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle you, I will sprinkle clean water on you. That's the first thing. There's a cleansing that's part of this. And then, a cleansing from sin, and then in verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Now, that's distinctive to regeneration in the millennial kingdom. That's not what happens in our regeneration. But don't get confused on that. I'm just pointing out two things. It involves these two aspects of cleansing and renewal. That's what uh, Paul is going to talk about in Titus 3.5, through the washing of regeneration, that's the cleansing, and renewal by the Holy Spirit, that's getting the human spirit and being made alive. So Jesus then explains it, that which is born of flesh is flesh. The birth, the water is born of flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It's, you don't save yourself. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And this is where Nicodemus wants an explanation. How can these things be? And Jesus says, don't you understand from the Old Testament? And then I'm going to skip the, uh, down to verse 13 because he, gets an, he gives an illustration from the Old Testament that a lot of people skip over when they start talking about, uh, about faith. It's very simple. Jesus says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is from heaven, by saying Referring to himself as the Son of Man, he's using a messianic title from Daniel 7. So he's claiming to be the Messiah. And then he interprets 
what's going on in Numbers chapter 9 when you have this episode in the Israelites and they're out in the wilderness, they're rebelling against God, so God disciplines them by sending these poisonous vipers into the camp. And if they would buy, were bitten, they would die fairly rapidly, a very painful death. They are called fiery serpents, probably refers to the impact of the, of the bite. And so God told Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, lift it up, and that anyone who just looked at that pole, the only reason they would look at it is because they would believe what Moses said, that if you look at the pole, God will heal you and you'll recover. And so this is the illustration of the gospel that Jesus is giving. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him. See, in the Old Testament, they believed Moses, and they looked at the serpent raised up on the pole. Now, if you believe in Jesus, what you're doing is you're looking at the cross, and you're believing that Christ died on the cross for your sins that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus explains this. He says, for God so loved the world. That's not the best translation. It should be for God loved the world in this way. For God in this way loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, he starts by saying you have to be born again. He ends by saying you believe and you will have everlasting life. So being born again is related to receiving eternal life. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2.5, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, what happens? We believe. We trust in the gospel. For by grace you have been saved, Paul will say in the next verse, or in this verse, and then in verses 8 and 9 he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You've believed the gospel. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and instantly you are given new life. You are made alive together with him. Now next time we'll come back and we'll look at these next two elements. What does it mean to be raised together with Christ and to be seated together in him with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity we have to go through this important passage, studying these details, understanding that we all have a problem. We're born with a problem. We're born spiritually dead. We're born separated from you, alienated from you, alienated from the life of God. And the only way to have eternal life, to get that life, to get your life given to us is to trust in Jesus Christ. We must be born again. We must trust in Christ and then we're given this new life. And we in this age are made alive together with Christ. Father, we pray that you would make this clear to anyone who's here this morning, uh, anyone who's listening that they would recognize that, that good deeds have nothing to do with it. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It has nothing to do with our background, our morality. It has nothing to do with how, how good we are or how bad we've been. It's simply that Christ died in our place 
And by looking to him in faith, then we are given eternal life. We're made alive together with him. Father, we pray that you would make this clear. And for those of us who have understood this, that we might understand it better and understand that this is the groundwork for living a life, serving you, living for you, glorifying you in every aspect of our life. And we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.